Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Welcome to today's session with Dan Corto. And we're going to open up with our scripture verse. Today will be the last day of our May scripture verse, and then we'll open in prayer. 1 John 4, 15 to 19. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Let's open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity once again that we can gather together as family, open our hearts, open our ears, and may it just go to that part of our hearts, Lord, that need to be addressed and to be uh, spoken to. Thank you, Father, for this time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Dan, Santa Dan, it's all yours. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Lise. Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be with you all again today. I hope my volume is up and everybody can hear all right. So yesterday, we read through Exodus 23 and 24, and we had noted that these chapters reveal some very curious laws, as well as some troubling information that seems to put God in a questionable light. And some people, including scholars and academics, feel that the predominant image of God in the Old Testament is that he can come across as being violent or vengeful. And at the very least, it seems that God has a serious mean streak. He seems to say and do things that we do not like. An appropriate solution to this is not to simply ignore, disregard, or reject these problem portions of Scripture but rather we should openly and honestly admit that profound ethical problems may arise from some parts of the Bible and have the potential of being seriously abused. So I just wanted to add this morning for those who were not with us during that portion uh, yesterday, for those that are with us for the first five minutes, if you find yourself reading through the Bible and you come across passages that become a real stumbling block to your understanding of God, then let me encourage you not to struggle on your own. At the very least, struggle in community. Struggle with others, like your heartstrong friends, or arrange time to discuss these issues with a pastor, a spiritual mentor, or someone whose perspective you respect and trust. When we wrestle with troubling texts together, 
Our conversations and our interactions will help provide a healthy corrective to our faulty views and our extreme personal perspectives. Relationship in the context of community helps us to think carefully and to remain accountable for our opinions and our words and to become responsible readers of the Bible. Our interpretation and application of scripture should be a public and a communal exercise, not merely private and personal. So today, we're going to take a closer look at the specific covenant that Yahweh, the proper name for God in Exodus, that he established at Mount Sinai with the unique community of people that he redeemed out of slavery. Understanding covenantal relationship between Yahweh and Israel is important to grasp. We are going to learn that at every moment, Yahweh may be counted upon to demonstrate love and goodness to his people. We will also learn what is their, the relational response expected from Yahweh's people and how they were invited to express their gratefulness through proper obedience to him and by worshiping him exclusively. For those of you who are at the five-minute mark here and need to step off the call, I want to encourage you today that as you go through your day, I want you just to reflect on the posture and the attitude of your heart toward God. Examine yourself and ask, am I following God with a heart of sincere gratitude. And that's the heart of what we're going to discuss today of covenant. So for those that need to go, God bless you. You have been blessed. Now go and be a blessing. Like yesterday, I'll just briefly mention the resources that I've used in preparing the teaching. I said yesterday that very a great deal of everything I share was gleaned from my Old Testament professor in seminary, John Kessler. Uh, he really helped me get my own mind around a lot of these things that we're discussing in the Old Testament and in each of the individual books, provided beautiful introductions and surveys and different ways of approaching the Old Testament. And a lot of it was in a fashion that I had not uh, learned before, I had not understood. And so it really helped me see a fresh perspective. And so I, I loved the way he presented it in class. The textbook we used in class was the textbook he wrote. It's called Old Testament Theology, Divine Call and Human Response. So a lot of my notes and a lot of what I share is taken from Dr. Kessler. Uh, yesterday, we posted some of the notes and I included uh, the name of his textbook in there for those that are interested. It's a, it's a very large monograph. So if, if you, you enjoy that sort of thing, you would find it very enriching. Also, uh, the book Epic of Eden uh, by Sandra Richter. And then, of course, uh, so many different essays from various scholars taken out of the Dictionary of Old Testament Pentateuch, which is a compendium of contemporary biblical scholarship. It gives a lot of the... Uh, the history of debates over key issues and what scholars have said 
what the church has believed and kind of where we are today, whether these debates are still live or not and how they're moving forward. Before we move on to reading our chapters today, I know today we're in chapters 25 and 26 of Exodus, but I just want to stay uh, with our chapters from yesterday a little while longer because I think it would be beneficial for us to cover two more of the big picture issues before we move on. So uh, don't lose heart. If we don't get to reading them together today, verse by verse, we will come back and cover this material. So yesterday we covered two big picture issues, wrestling with troubling texts and a proper approach to reading the Old Testament. Now I would like to look at a big picture issue number three, and that is covenant. There's no doubt that covenant is a major theological stream that flows through the Pentateuch and the Old Testament. Understanding covenant is foundational for making sense of many things in the Bible. For example, if you'll turn with me really quick to chapter two of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. It says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. This is really important because the key to interpreting and understanding the Exodus event and this covenant that we're looking at here at Sinai is really found in this earlier part of Exodus. Why did Yahweh act to rescue the people of Israel out of Egypt? It was because of his prior covenant promise to the patriarchs. So he made a promise to Abraham. He confirmed it with Isaac and Jacob and was reminded of that when his people were in slavery and cried out under their heavy burden. So covenant is very important. Covenant of Sinai, though, is different than the covenant we see that was established with Abraham. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. It's useful to know that not all the covenants are the same. In fact, there are numerous and diverse types of covenant that can be found in the Bible. Some are established between individuals and some between nations. You may have heard before that the five major covenants that are often discussed by individuals, preachers, teachers, and so forth, are these following five. Number one is the covenant with Noah. You can find that in Genesis chapter 9. Verses 1 to 17. The second one is the covenant with Abraham. You can find that primarily in Genesis 17. There's other uh, portions in Genesis as well that allude to that. But of course, we have the Sinai covenant, and that is found throughout the book of Exodus as well as throughout Deuteronomy. We have the covenant established with David, often referred to as the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 17. And you could also look further in Psalms 89 and 132. And then the fifth major one that is often discussed is the new covenant, which we first read about in Jeremiah 31, 
verses 31 to 33. Dr. Kessler, my professor, he notes these covenants do not grow in a kind of unilineral fashion, the latter displacing the earlier ones, nor are they simply a series of expansions, each one, each later one adding to the content of its predecessor. They do, however, reflect the ongoing purposes of God in the context of the drama of the divine human relationship, end quote. So let's look at some basic information about covenants that will be helpful. The concept of covenant is not unique to the Old Testament. As Dr. Kessler notes, archaeologists have discovered extensive data with reference to the use of covenants in the ancient, ancient Near East. About the middle of the last century, there was a massive discovery of a large number of ancient Near Eastern political treaties, or also known as covenants, that date from the third to the first millennia BC. Sandra Richter notes that the international covenant was very familiar in the ancient Near East. And so the form in which these covenants or treaties appeared became quite standardized. And she uses um, the example of a marriage license today or a bill of sale. We're very uh, familiar with these documents. Everyone knows what these items are. And so this particular format of a covenant or a treaty acquired an international currency that was recognizable throughout the entire ancient Near Eastern region. And so this discovery of data and the subsequent scholarly research and study that ensued has helped us to consider how the biblical writers may have used these concepts and forms to express Israel's relationship with Yahweh. John Kessler notes four important types of covenants. We're not going to be able to look at all of them, but each one of them can be found in Scripture. But the one that interests us for today is called the suzerainty covenant, which is established between a lesser party and a greater party. The lesser often referred to as a vassal and the greater as a suzerain, hence the suzerain covenant. This is the one that we are looking at primarily for uh, what we're looking at in Exodus. In the ancient Near East, suzerainty treaties generally had uh, the same components to them. There was a what is known as a preamble, a historical prologue, stipulations, a place where the copies of the text were to be deposited, a periodic reading when the covenant would be read aloud, a list of witnesses, and then a section for blessings and curses. I'd like to quote at length from John Kessler, because what he says here is very interesting. Numerous biblical scholars view the suzerainty covenant pattern as being extremely influential in shaping what we read in Exodus 19 to 24, as well in chapters 32 to 34, in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. In Exodus in particular, the following elements can be found. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 9, we see that the people agree. Now, this is interesting. This is not forced upon the, the Israelites, but the people agree to enter into and to abide by the terms of the covenant. So they're invited by Yahweh and they accept. 
Number two, the identification of the signatories and the historical prologue are kind of woven together in the one short phrase, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, in chapter 20, verse 2. And that phrase you will see often repeated throughout the Old Testament. This is God, or Yahweh, once again, identifying the parties of the covenant. Number three, the covenant's primary stipulation is that of undivided and exclusive loyalty. And that's expressed in verse three of chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. And then, of course, following that from verses four to 17 are the foundational requirements of the covenant. In chapters 21 to 23, there are more specific regulations regarding Israel's life and worship. And we touched on that a little bit yesterday because we read through chapter 23. Subsequently, Exodus 24 contains several elements that regard the ritual or the formal aspects of ratifying a covenant, verses 3 and 7 especially. You can go back and reread that later. Sacrifices are offered and the blood is sprinkled upon the altar, the people, and the book of the covenant, you will recall, while the words of the covenant were being read. That was verses 5 to 8 of chapter 23. And this symbolizes the oath that binds the people to obedience to the covenant and the dire consequences that await them if they violate it. So the splattering blood is a chilling symbol of their fate should they break their covenant. Then in a ritual mirroring the common practice of a covenantal meal, this is what we see going on when the elders of Israel ascend the mountain of Yahweh with Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. They come into Yahweh's presence, and there they beheld God, it says in verse 11, and they ate and they drank. This is part of ratifying the covenant. This was common in the ancient Near East. And so these same elements are familiar to what's going on in Exodus. Finally, in chapter 24, verse 12, it describes the inscribing of words upon a tablet, which is reminiscent of a treaty deposit. And then, of course, later on, we will see that Yahweh requests or tells his people, tells Moses to put that treaty, put those commandments into the ark. We haven't gotten to the ark yet, but we're going to read about that. It's a place where the covenant stipulations are deposited. And then you'll also see throughout the Old Testament, there were times where there was public readings of the law. And this is also a common part of covenant. Sandra Richter notes, and she asks the question then, so how does covenant, this ancient vehicle of international politics, how does this relate to your Bible and your faith? Well, for one, it reveals that Yahweh did not create the covenant idea, trying to convince the Israelites of some new idea that they had no knowledge of. But he co-opted the idea and used it to communicate his plan of redemption. Yahweh chose a vehicle that was recognizable not only to Israel, but throughout all of Israel's world. All the other ancient Near Eastern countries would recognize what was going on between Israel and their God. Yahweh offered himself to Israel by means of a covenant. John Kessler notes that the Old Testament writers 
are using the covenant language of Yahweh with Israel as an analogy of his relationship with God's people, with his people. However, we shouldn't read everything too rigidly and fit everything into this covenant pattern because although there are numerous similarities, there are also some critically important differences too. So one very helpful thing to do is to look for the specific emphases of each covenant that we come across in scripture. And we're going to look at the specific emphasis of the Sinai covenant momentarily. We said yesterday that when considering an approach to reading the Old Testament, we should be sensitive to theological diversity. We should not try and force everything we read into a nice, neat system. We read in Exodus chapters 20 to 24 and that they were part of a theological stream that we can call Sinai Covenant Theology. And I want to give you a summary of that in just a moment. But this is different from what we are going to read today, tomorrow, and Thursday in chapters 25 to 30. So once again, I'd like to quote at length uh, John Kessler because he provides a wonderful summary of what Sinai Covenant Theology is. Quote, Sinai Covenant Theology describes the relationship between Yahweh and Israel which is rooted in Yahweh's gracious deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Once delivered, Israel is invited to enter into a commitment of an enduring relationship with Yahweh, and it's formalized by a covenant. Yahweh commits to being a God unto his people. That is, he will give them the gift of the land of Canaan and continue to function as deliverer, provider, and sustainer of his on his people's behalf. For its part, Israel's, Israel commits itself to the exclusive worship of Yahweh alone, and to obeying the terms of Yahweh's covenant. Since Yahweh is a passionate God, failure to maintain the terms of the relationship will result in the unleashing of judgments against the people. However, since Yahweh is also merciful and compassionate, in the midst of these judgments, Yahweh may choose to forgive and restore his people if they turn to him in sincere repentance. End quote. We noted yesterday that in our approach to the Old Testament, we ought to constantly ask the question, how should the people of God then respond? Remember, not all the Old Testament calls for the exact same response. So for Abraham in that covenant, his response simply was to believe. Believe in God's promise and to trust that God would fulfill it. But we're now in a different theological stream. A different tradition is being presented. So what is the proper response of God's people now? John Kessler once again notes that Sinai Covenant theology invites calls for several foundational relational responses within this divine human relationship. Let me name six of them for you. First, it calls for God's people to live lives of grateful obedience and joyful worship. Second, it calls for loyalty and exclusivity of worship. Third, it insists that exclusive commitment to Yahweh must 
translate into just and compassionate dealings with others. Fourth, it recognizes the reality of sin and failure. However, it also insists that for repentance to be real, it must involve real behavioral change. Fifth, it calls for the people of God to hold fast to both the justice and the faithful mercy of Yahweh. Yahweh is a God, remember, of chesed, which is profound loyalty and commitment. But we need to understand that this mercy and long-suffering, however, must not be abused because evil does have real consequences. And sixth, it invites responsiveness to the demands of the covenant from a sincere and undivided heart. Now, we also said yesterday that when looking for the values or virtues that Yahweh expected of his people in the Sinai covenant, we can also look forward to the New Testament to see if Yahweh still expects the same things of his people there. So looking at the time, I think in the next six minutes, we should be able to cover this. So I would like to present to you some New Testament resonances that carry forward. John Kessler notes that Sinai Covenant theology has many New Testament resonances. And for most of us, as readers of the New Testament, we're very familiar with the contrasts between the revelation at Sinai and then the advent of Jesus Christ. I mean, we read that in John, in Galatians, in 2 Corinthians, and in Hebrews. But what's interesting is far more striking are the continuities. So let me outline some of them for you. Number one, grateful obedience. The call to gratitude for the gift of salvation is central to the New Testament. Jesus repeatedly states that to love God is to keep God's commandments. John 14, verse 15, verse 21, John 15, verse 10. So in other words, love is not just a sentiment. It's not some fuzzy, warm feeling of emotion. You know, we sometimes think, oh, I love God so much, I couldn't love him anymore. Okay, well, prove it. Do and follow and obey what God commands. This essentially is what Jesus is getting at. He says, love means following God's commands. Which brings us to the second thing. The law is presented as good. In Romans 7.12, Paul viewed the law as holy, just, and good. For Paul, law became problematic when it was viewed as a means to enter a relationship with God or as a basis for earning favor with God or trying to put God in your debt. But as a means of maintaining and sustaining the relationship, the law is very good. Number three is this resonance of the new covenant. The new covenant inaugurated by Jesus at the Last Supper in Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11, and into which the church itself enters. And you see that numerous times in the book of Hebrews. This is the new covenant that is referred to in Jeremiah 31. This is not a different or a changed covenant from the Sinai covenant. Rather, its distinctiveness lies in Yahweh's transformation of the human heart which produces a sincere internal commitment to do God's will. So we, we come to see that the, 
The problem was not the covenant. The problem was the human heart. A fourth thing was loyalty and exclusivity of worship. God still requires that of his people today. Fifth, the theme of election and responsibility. The New Testament takes up this theme of gracious election of the people of God, as seen in the Sinai Covenant theology. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament views election as bringing both obligation and responsibility. 1 Peter 2.9 quotes from Exodus 19.6, and it stresses that the church's election, just like Israel's election, is not an end in itself. It is a means of witness to the nations of the world of the mercy and the love of God, because God fully intends to bless the nations. And this is the vehicle through which he chooses to do that. This is not God electing us to pour his favor and blessing on us for us just to revel in it for our own private purposes. God is intending to reach the nations, and Paul views God's election as being purposeful. It is meant to issue forth in good works, Ephesians 2.10. Election carries the obligation of walking worthy of your calling, Ephesians 4 verse 1. I don't I forget what number we're at now, if it's five or six, but there's also the dangers of disrespecting the covenant. The New Testament is still insistent that while God is gracious and merciful, God must not be trifled with. Grace must not be misused. And so there are numerous places in the New Testament that talk about and warn believers against abusing the grace of God. And the last point is divine mercy and assurance of forgiveness. The Sinai covenant holds out the possibility of forgiveness. Now, this, for some, may fly in the face of the New Testament's assertions that forgiveness is only made possible through the death of Christ. Most especially those passages in Hebrews that assert the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. That's chapter 10, verse 4. But such text must be understood as emphasizing that the objective ground upon which sin is removed, that is the death of Christ, not the act of offering the sacrifices, rather negating the reality of the forgiveness that is found in the Old Testament. So contrary to what a lot of us have perhaps believed is that there was genuine, legitimate forgiveness by Yahweh to his people found in the covenant at Sinai. And he outlines all the different ways in which that takes place. So when we get into those tedious texts of Leviticus, they're for a very particular purpose. Okay, I don't think we're going to have sufficient time uh, to read through the designated chapters for today. I, I apologize for that. But if you're able to take a few minutes at some point today to read through chapters 25 and 26, we will come back to that. I just want you to note, though, as you're reading chapters 25 and 26 today, you're going to encounter now a new theological tradition, a new stream. We just finished talking about Sinai covenant theology, but today the chapters are part of a stream that we are going to call priestly theology. And we'll aim to provide more details on that tomorrow. And also tomorrow, we're going to be diving in uh, more closely at law, the whole theme 
of law. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together.